0: A stock trader has access to high volumes of information to help that stock trader make decisions about whether or not to buy an asset. A trader who's considering buying a share of Google stock can find charts, reports, and statistical tools to help with their decision. There are a variety of machine learning products to help a technical investor create models of how a stock price might change in the future. Real estate investors, on the other hand, do not have access to the same data and tooling. Most people who invest in apartment buildings are using a combination of experience, news, and basic reports. Real estate data is very different from stock data. Real estate assets are not fungible. Each one is arguably unique from all others, whereas one share of Google stock is the same as another share. But there are commonalities between real estate assets. Just like collaborative filtering can be applied to find a new movie that is similar to the ones that you've already watched on Netflix... Comparable analysis can be used to find an apartment building that's very similar to another apartment building, which recently appreciated in asset value. And this comparable analysis, by finding traits that are similar in apartment building purchase opportunities, is the backbone of Skyline.ai. Skyline.ai is a company that is building tools and machine learning models for real estate investors. Or Hilch is the CTO at Skyline.ai, and he joins the show to explain how to apply machine learning to real estate investing. He also describes the mostly serverless architecture of the company. This is one of the first companies that we've talked to that is so heavily built on managed services and functions as a service. And so it was really fascinating to hear about their backend, because it's markedly different than a lot of the other companies that we've talked to. The fact that they are so heavily built on managed services and, quote, serverless infrastructure. Or Hilch, you are a co-founder and CTO at Skyline.ai. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to talk to you about this set of challenges that you're tackling. Can you give a brief description of the problem you're trying to solve at Skyline AI?
1: Certainly. Yeah. So the problem that we're trying to solve is is basically mostly around being able to make real estate investments more precisely in the same, you know, scientific manner that we're used to from doing pretty much everything else these days. Right. So I could be, you know, selling stuff on Amazon or, uh, you know, trying to get a loan or whatever. And by doing that these days, almost all of these things would be highly powered by machine learning and other data driven approaches. And the thing about real estate investments that it's kind of like still remained traditional in the sense that it's very very much intuition based, and sometimes that intuition works. And in fact, some of what we're trying to build is exactly that intuition, only like in like mathematically, uh, so to speak. But a lot of that intuition is sometimes based on some cognitive bias that turns out to be wrong. So our main mission is to basically you know try to advance this world of of real estate investments into you know the age of technology or, you know, to make it uh, somehow more comparable with what we're used to from, you know, the stock market where robotic trading is, is currently, uh, you know, responsible for about 70 or 80% of trading. So real estate
0: investing is a topic I'm somewhat familiar with because my mom has been in real estate for about 10 or 12 years in Austin over the course of which Austin, Texas has grown. It's expanded a lot. And it's, a, it's one of those markets that's there's asymmetric advantage that you can accumulate by experience, essentially. So over the past 10 or 12 years, she's had her ups and downs, but now she has so much knowledge and so many relationships that she can really get a good grasp on the information that's out there. But even so, I feel like this is the kind of set of tools that would be really useful to her because if she had a dashboard in front of her that said, hey, here's a lot of heuristics or insights, and maybe you could drill down further into this, I feel like that would be really useful. Now, obviously, the ideal would be that you would have so much information that it would be like you're sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal for real estate and which is you know a Bloomberg terminal for those who don't know is you know for traders a trader sitting in New York or in Chicago has this operating system of information in front of them for how to trade stocks or bonds or currencies and you don't need to be in Turkey to know about currency fluctuations of Turkey all you need is the Bloomberg terminal in front of you so where do you think you're at in terms of of progress between the sort of tool that gives you some insights that are useful, but you still need to be in the area, you still need to have some domain expertise versus the Bloomberg terminal? All
1: right, so that's a great question. So there's no doubt that, you know, real estate experts, brokers, and those guys know their markets inside and out. You know, the good broker or the good experts like your mother has seen, you know, dozens or even hundreds of different assets during the past 10 or 20 years. But, you know, eventually their field of view is still limited by that experience. The AI that we're building, you know, it has like about 50 years of experience and it has seen all assets in all times. And it's also able to basically extrapolate insights from all sorts of, you know, commonalities that aren't necessarily dependent on the geography. So, for example, you would imagine an asset in Seattle, which is, you know, maybe shares a few things with an asset in New York just because both of those assets are you know, relatively close to an Amazon office and the tenants are roughly the same and you know, the parks in the area are roughly the same and so forth. So, yeah, so definitely even the, uh, you know, the best of workers could definitely use something like a tool that powers it um, you know, uh, to basically uncover all of those hidden correlations. Regarding where we're actually at at the moment, so currently technology-wise, our focus is on basically being able to predict things like market value of assets So we're operating in the commercial real estate uh, environment. So that would be multifamily assets and above. So not single family homes. And in that market, it could be fairly difficult to assess the value of an asset. So our algorithm is basically able to generate a really, really high accuracy prediction for those market values, and we're also about generating future rent predictions. So these are the areas where currently I would say we are definitely already providing a lot of value. We like to call that the the Ironman suit for real estate underwriting. So it doesn't act as to completely replace uh, the analyst. It basically just you know arms them with superhuman abilities when it comes to you know getting to know the assets really, really. Deep.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like the chess player who has a computer helping them to evaluate the set of moves, the centaur chess model, the augmentative model. Why are you focused on commercial real estate instead of and also including the single family occupancy homes as well right now.
1: So basically skyline is, was born out of a personal lead that, that we had myself and my co-founders where we actually invested ourselves in uh, in multifamily assets and that asset asset class has actually a lot of advantages when it comes you know to things like defensibility you know because in a multifamily asset it's basically a rental property right so whenever the economy is down the occupancies levels are still fairly high so there are a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, you know, that, that make this sort of asset really interesting for us because we kind of like uh, enjoy, you know, the, the fact that it's, it's residential in a sense, right, because people actually live there. So a lot of features that are features that are really interesting for residents, like, you know, schools, the crime rates, you know, walk score and things like that are relevant to that asset. But on the other hand, it's an asset that is traded by huge companies, which has which have commonalities like holding periods, like certain areas where they like to invest, like certain things that happen to the assets before they try to dispose of it. So it's really an asset that we, an asset class that we figured was perfect for us, um, you know, to to attack as the first go-to market when it comes to developing uh, accurate models.
0: Are the data sets more available in commercial real estate than residential single family occupancy?
1: So it's debatable because there are data sets around multifamily. So we are actually paying uh, quite a lot of money for data these days. But the truth is that none of the data sources... So there is no real uh, one or even uh, 10 data sets that you could use to get the complete picture when it comes to multifamily, just as there isn't one in single family. The truth is that we actually spend a lot of our work... So we actually, in our R&D, R&D group, we basically have two teams... One team is the data engineering team, and these are the guys who are responsible for, you know, getting the data and normalizing it and, you know, eventually building this one nice, clean, homogeneous layer that the data science team could uh, could then later on uh, connect to to generate all of the insights. So it's really a game of, you know, being able to, you know, periodically download and stream Hundreds of different data sources with many dependencies between them in order to basically gain this understanding. So it's not a picnic, but I would assume that it's not. You know, it's uh, the, the situation is not really different for single family as well.
0: What I've heard about building these kinds of machine learning companies is oftentimes you are gated by access to the data. Whether you're talking about building a machine learning model for predicting the severity of a stroke or you're trying to build something around mapping in all of these cases, it comes down to, can you get the data? Is there even somebody that you can buy the data from? Once you find that person who you can buy the data from, do you have the budget to afford
1: it? (laughs) Yeah. So it's a really, really big barrier to entry to this market. That's definitely true. And I think that a part of uh, what we do to mitigate, so this problem exists obviously uh, in real estate as well. In real estate, there are, uh, at least in commercial real estate, there are several so-called commercial real estate analytics companies that you can buy data from, but that data is not always that accurate. So one thing that we do in order to solve this problem is we actually partner with funds private equities, and other real estate players in a sort of relationship where we provide them with some insights about some of the deals and properties that they're looking at in exchange to getting some of their proprietary data. One such example is an agreement that we have with Greystone, which is one of the largest lenders for multifamily in the States, where we actually enjoy this partnership uh, in a way that uh, definitely helps us uh, get more quality data.
0: Before we get into the guts of how your company works, I'd like to take a step back and talk a little bit about the core hypothesis of your company, which is that you can use technical analysis for real estate purchases. So there are some people who will, in financial trading, securities trading, stock trading, some people are technical analysts, some people are fundamental analysts, like Warren Buffett will say you should look at the fundamentals of a specific business You should look at each business atomically and, you know, rather than looking at how the market is fluctuating and the large collection of signals and trying to derive the wisdom of the crowds from these small technical signals and just accumulating technical wisdom. And then there's a giant amount of people who fall somewhere in between that gradient between fundamental and technical analysis. So I'm sure if there's people who are involved in real estate who are listening to this, they might be thinking this is a losing game. You can't use these raw stats to figure out how to make a real estate decision. It all depends on do you know the market? Do you know the people? Do you know the way that the neighborhoods interact with each other? Do you have the macro perspective? Because the historical data is not going to help you. So I'd like to hopefully counter some of the the upfront arguments against this kind of platform existing in the world.
1: Yeah, so I think that eventually what we're building, as I called it in a few minutes ago, is kind of like the Ironman suit for real estate investments. So it's as, as it is right now, it is not meant to completely uh, replace humans in the process uh, because the, the process of a real estate acquisition is actually quite a long one, which includes a lot of, uh, a lot of manual steps for example actually closing the deal you cannot you know close a deal in real estate by pushing a button you can do in in the stock market however you can definitely use predictions about things like you know what the asset is actually worth or what what the rent is right now and what it is probably going to be in a year from now and that is on a, on, a sphere of, uh, on a sphere of data that you're partly exposed to right now when you're making investments. So most analysts, when they would uh, look into acquiring a multifamily deal or a multifamily asset, they would check a few things like, you know, uh, the schools around the property and some of the properties comps. Actually, the properties comps is a really good example of, of, of how you could actually use this sort of technology to, you know, to exponentially improve your performance. Would you say property discount? so it's called the property comps so if when you examine a specific investment or a property one of the first things that you that you do is you construct a peer set, a peer group which is basically a set of properties which are comparable to your asset so you want, you want to know that you could you know buy this asset and then maybe make some value add investment and then your thesis is that you could charge some premium uh, you know following that value add investment And one of the key things to do in this understanding is to look at comparable assets. So assets which are, for example, uh, traditionally roughly from the same vintage, uh, have the same number of units, are in close proximity to the asset and so forth. But usually when the analyst does that, they are fairly limited in their field of view, right? So they would pick, you know, maybe four or five or uh, go crazy, like 10 assets and then they would try to get their understanding of, okay, where this asset is standing versus uh, these guys. Obviously, using machine learning, you know when you can construct a group which is comprised out of thousands of similar assets and not just four or five, uh, your analysis you know improves drastically, right? And that's just one example, you know, trying to figure out what is the op- optimal um, renovation budget for such a property based on you know all sorts of parameters. It's also something which is not revealed to do, you know, without ha- having access to such a, an abundance of data. And, you know, concerning the actual knowledge of you know the locality so basically the the types of data that we currently have it could be like really really local so I I mentioned the actual assigned schools for each property and its grades uh, the pattern of roads around the property you know all sorts of things like that but it's also macro level data so for each transaction that we are looking at for example in our value prediction algorithm the machine learning algorithm learns by looking at past transactions and for each such transactions it has a really huge features vector which is also comprised out of macro level data for example what was the interest rate back then what was the 10 year uh, treasury constant maturity rate back then what was what were the libor rates back then so it's 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 both looking at really high resolution you know local properties but also in really macro level properties
0: a couple things there the idea that you can use your product or or a product like it use machine learning to, for example, predict how much a certain type of renovation is going to cost. That's pretty useful if you're, for example, you're considering buying a commercial property that has an HVAC system that's malfunctioning in this, in this particular way. And you say, I have no idea how to find out. Is there going to be budget creep in this HVAC re- reinstallation? And what what if there's also wiring issues in the building, and and I need to get those done too? And is that going to overlap with the problems of my HVAC reinstallation? I could imagine being able to predict the prices of those kinds of things would really help you in buying decisions and other kinds of decisions. But the core of what you said there is that comparable analysis has been a big windfall. It, it's been a it's been an insight that has really been useful to you. And in some ways, I I think this is is nothing new. It's collaborative filtering. This is the same thing that gives you Netflix recommendations based off of people like you or, you know, Amazon recommendations based on people like you or people who also liked this item. This is a well-studied area of machine learning, of computer science. We know it works. If you have the right signals, if you have the right data... So what are the signals that you have found to be the highest signal in trying to construct a comparable analysis model?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, so obviously, some of the features are things that uh, I cannot expose because you know these are some of uh, what makes our secret sauce. But I could definitely mention a couple of those.
0: Other ones are just latent, right?
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, so yeah, a couple of examples is you know, maybe the more trivial ones would be you know, all sorts of uh, trends in the property rents. So once you have access, you know, to the history, you know, to like a time series of, uh, of rent data, of rental, rental performance data, that obviously represents like similarity in some sense. Other ones would be things like more advanced ones would be actually kind of like a, a digital signature of the property's environment. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So one of the nicest things that we're we doing at Skyline is we're actually using machine learning to generate new features or more machine learning models. So we have our supervised learning algorithm which is responsible for things like the value prediction. But in fact, some of the features that feed into this model are generated by unsupervised learning models. So just as an example, for each and every asset that we're looking at, we're using Google Maps' static API to basically take a snapshot of the property's immediate environment, emphasizing things like roads or other points of interest, and then using other encoders powered by ConfNets we're able to represent, uh, to learn the representation of that environment. So, you know, the, the ratio and, and distances between the asset and all sorts of points of interest, for example, things like roads, schools, parks, bodies of water, and things like that. So the, the use of autoencoders basically allows us to translate that image into a really small vector that eventually is just another feature in our value prediction. So in a sense, it's, you know, the historical rents, whatever compounds the property's environment, a macro level financial figure is like, you know, I mentioned the U.S. bonds. So the 10-year treasury quantum maturity rates, which are actually an alternative investment to real estate and things like that.
0: You mentioned an application there of auto encoders. And I don't think this is a topic that we can completely describe on a podcast but could you give a few other applications for autoencoders when are autoencoders generally useful for a machine learning application
1: So autoencoders are classically used in a noise reduction and anomaly detection so the basic idea is that using an auto an autoencoder is a mechanism it's it's its architecture its underlying architecture it could be various types of neural networks when it comes to using autoencoders over visual data, for example, something like a graph or a map, usually you would train an autoencoder to be able to represent an image using fewer fewer data points. So the autoencoder would take an image and it would, its job would be to restore the exact same image using less data. The result is that the places where the autoencoder isn't able to reconstruct the image as well as it can, so those areas would usually be classified as anomalies. So you would see people using autoencoders encoders in anomaly detections, for example, for you know monitoring server activity and things like that. Also, uh, like I said, in noise reduction, it's it's fairly common to use them in a noise re- noise reduction scenarios when you get a noisy signal and you want to actually figure out what is the signal and what is the noise. Yeah, so those would be uh, two common uses for that.
0: Interesting. So it's kind of like compression. Compression algorithms, the more commonality you have across your data, the more efficient your compression is going to be. And with autoencoders, encoders, you're kind of, you can use that to say, well, if we're not able to compress it effectively, or encode it effectively, that's in, in some sense, an anomaly by definition. But more generally speaking, in the non anomaly detection example, you can use it to just reduce the dimensionality of an image, for example, or a set of images. And so you so your machine learning model can process the data in a collection of images more effectively.
1: Yes, exactly. So if some of the listeners are familiar, with PCA, Principal Component Analysis, which is, you know, a method of, you know, reducing the dimensionality of a vector. So you could definitely think of an autoencoder as a non-linear PCA, uh, basically being able to apply the same principle, but not using like orthogonal transformation, which only works in, in like, you know, when the, the properties or the features are linearly correlated.
0: Let's get a feel for the timeline of this business. I was looking at your work history, and you've done a couple other companies in the past, and so this was nothing new to you. What was the process of figuring out what this product was going to be? Did did you know it up front? And so you said, okay, let's grab a a data set and just start hacking on it and see if there's a there there. Uh, What was the, the founding sequence of steps?
1: Yeah so it's a, it's a great question. I think it, it's funny that we actually had several other companies in the past prior to Skyline, but Skyline is probably the the first company that we that we established that actually, you know, sprung out of a personal need. So prior to Skyline, we had a company around uh, cybersecurity which was acquired by AVG, the antivirus software company, and then we had a company around video optimization, a company called Streamrail which was acquired by IronSource in 2006 and then what happened is that we actually started investing in in real estate personally and we we kind of like figured out that it's not working too well because you know we would have a you know he would have a hard time finding the best deals and then once we reached an operator you know they would provide us with the OM with the offering memorandum depicting you know all of the deals characteristics like the expected the yield and Things like that, and we had no idea of you know figuring out if that data was correct or not, or you know, and for whether or not those predictions about the yield are are worth anything. So we started out by you know just looking around. And we thought, okay, maybe we should you know look at what the big boys are doing, the ones who manage the the investments for you know some of the largest institutions uh, in Israel and in the States. And we got a few introductions to you know some of the people who who had the global real estate operations for some of the largest private equities in New York City. And we met with them and we saw that, you know, they are not doing a lot of data capabilities are not as good as they could be. Just as an example, so, you know, my little brother, uh, he's a dentist, but he has this hobby of building uh, Irish tin whistles, right? So he builds them from scratch. And it's just a hobby because, you know, in his day-to-day work, he's a dentist. Irish
0: tin whistles?
1: Yes, yes. It's a type of flute. It's a pretty nice instrument anyways, and he likes to uh, to sell them on eBay and Amazon just for the fun, you know. And the type of tooling that he gets, you know, as a merchant on eBay and Amazon to optimize his sales is a million times more sophisticated and more data-driven than the type of data tools that, you know, some of the largest private equities in real estate today have. So that was when we realized, okay, so, you know, There is something here that we can probably try to improve. And that was how Scania was born. Uh, The next steps were, you know, trying to figure out what can we get from around the web, uh, you know, we had gone through a really long process of understanding you know, which of the data providers are more accurate than the others. We've actually built and trained today. We are actually building machinery models just to tell us which of the data providers is likely to be more accurate you know, in the property level. So we've gone through quite a big journey you know, and just in, 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 in setting up the infrastructure for doing this thing.
0: This is one of those things where you are probably faced with the question, why doesn't this exist? And if it seems like this should have existed, therefore, maybe we shouldn't even try it. There's probably very rational reasons that it doesn't exist. Let's go move on to something else. But instead, you said, no, there is a reason why this doesn't exist in the market, whether it was... The lack of a overlap between somebody that saw this opportunity and somebody that had the real estate or sorry, the machine learning insights to figure it out, or maybe the machine learning tools have gotten easy enough to work with that now you can do this, or maybe the data is more accessible. Do you have any understanding of why this problem had not been successfully
1: tackled before? Yeah, so I think it's a it's a combination. I think I have like my own theory regarding the the DNA of the types of of players that work in this field. So you know, there is a, a growing understanding in all of the in the commercial real estate investment world that you know AI and machine learning are going to you know change the face of the field in the next coming years. And these uh, some of these organizations have been able to you know recruit a data science team, try to you know figure out how can they how can they improve things. But the truth is that the type of challenge that we're facing here is just as much as as an engineering challenge as it is uh, an AI challenge, right? So you know, just being able to you know construct this this data layer, which is fed constantly from you know dozens or hundreds of different of data sources with dependencies between them and you know uh, concurrency requirements and things like that. So just just this part is it's quite a big engineering effort, and you do need like you know uh, an engineering culture, and I would even say like startup DNA to be able to to manage that. Certainly to converge it with with AI disciplines, right? So. Traditionally, people coming from the, you know, from the AI and data science world are more research oriented and they're able to do magical things given, you know, the, the correct data. But in this business, it's, it's really about merging, you know, both engineering and data science. And this is something that I think has been the, 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 big, the big financial institutions have really been struggling with. So that's, I guess, like my, uh, you know, my R&D manager point of view but there are a lot of other reasons right so it's like one of the largest traditional industries in the world today right a lot of things are still uh, you know based on lack of transparency so you know the bidding process you know you you can see uh, what the property sold for but you cannot necessarily tell uh, you know what were the bids prior to that so yeah i think uh, these are you know some just some of the reasons for that not to have happened yet.
0: I love your data engineering hypothesis where you take a big financial institution. They have the data advantage. They have lots of historical data, but it's spread throughout the company. And the people at the top who are asking for that data because they want to make a high impact investment decisions based on it, they have to ask a business analyst. The business analyst has to ask a data scientist. The data scientist has to ask a data engineer. And the data engineer has to go find the 50 data sources throughout the company and figure out how to get them together. And, you know, by the time they get all that and they hand it off to the data scientist, the data scientist hands it back to the data analyst. The data analyst hands it back to the VP of, you know, real estate investments. It's been eight months and the opportunity has passed.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah so I think one of the uh, things I like the most about Scana is that it's really a weird bunch of people rocking around the office here We've somehow been able to merge you know those three disciplines into one company that works like a single organism So we have you know the, the engineering guys on one hand, the AI guys on the other hand uh, and the real estate people and they're all working together continuously to improve this. This is something that I think it's it's really hard to reconstruct in a certainly in a large oh, yeah. you know, financial organization
0: Oh yeah well I mean and not to mention the fact that you can start with modern productivity tools. you can start with Slack and whatever project management tools you use and the org structure is small enough so that those tools haven't scaled and and fractured yet so you can communicate more effectively and so it makes a lot of sense. I do want to get a sense of the data engineering pipeline you have. so as far as I understand so far, The input is lots of sources of data from different real estate data systems. And I believe you have all of the commercial real estate or or the vast majority of the commercial real estate in the United States across the the union of all those data sets. Is that right?
1: So, yeah. So, right now, we're actually focused on multifamily assets. So, we do cover pretty much all of them. And the way that our data data pipelines... And and by the way, so that's that's
0: like apartments. You have like all the apartments and...
1: Right, okay. so it's apartment complexes, exactly. So, the way that we basically have two types of pipelines uh, running uh, on a nightly basis. One is the data pipeline. So, that's basically uh, starting out with uh, an in house infrastructure that we have developed in order to orchestrate the running of the ETLs. So, ETLs, you know, uh, an application that uh, extracts, transforms, and loads data. Uh, and we have uh, a bunch of these, like about around 130. Each shot application, it's a standalone application, uh, written in Go in our case, which is responsible for you know, downloading the data from somewhere. It could be from one of our data partners. It could be from using Google Maps API. Uh, it could be by you know, downloading PDF documents and then extracting uh, structured data from the handwritten uh, signatures and things like that. So it's really, really varied. So each ETL is a standalone Go application, which is then dockerized, so we run it inside the Docker container, and we have an orchestrator that basically knows when and how to run each of these Docker containers. So the thing is, you know, once you have a lot of these, so just as an example, I could run the ETL that you know fetches the weather data in parallel to running the ETL that fetches the weather data, the, the crime data, right? Because they're both not related. But I would not want to call the you know, the process that generates the new predictions before those two are complete. So if you look at you know the variety of those ETL applications, eventually you would end up with you know with some kind of something like a graph like like a directed ASic leak graph where each node represents an ETL application and they have all sorts of dependencies between them, which enable you to run some of them concurrently or to know that there is no use in running something because its dependency has failed. So we have built an in-house infrastructure to handle that, which is basically uh, running, uh, it's responsible for executing the graph each night. And one cool thing that we have did in this process is, is basically leverage serverless capabilities in order to no, not be uh, tied into something like a huge machine that would handle all of this load. So in our process our orchestrator basically kicks off uh, each ETL inside a Docker container. And the runtime for that Docker container is a platform called Hypershell. Hypershell, it's it's a serverless container platform, kind of like AWS Fargate, which is, is kind of new. Basically, in two words, that means that you could basically tell that platform, uh, look, here is my Docker image, just run it. I don't want to have to worry about, you know, the location or the the type of machine or anything like that, and that has scaled pretty well for us because since each and every ETL is, uh, you know, it has its own different needs. It definitely makes sense to, you know, run them completely separately, you know, on a serverless infrastructure where you, where you don't have to care about things like the memory consumption or you know the network and bandwidth and stuff like that
0: is that hyper.sh is it that company yes it is yes indeed that, or, or that's also Zeit, right or, or it's a company under Zite or is that different yeah
1: yeah so uh, no so hypercell it's a, it's a completely different company but it, it is uh, fairly similar to Zite okay
0: alright cool And there, are they using AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions or something underneath?
1: No, they've actually built their own infrastructure. I think they do support, you know, being deployed on AWS, but it's mostly their own stuff.
0: I've talked to some people that use Airflow for orchestrating these kinds of jobs and the dependency graphs, because like you said, you have this series of ETL pipelines, and some of them may depend on each other. And so that the happens before relationship can be important, you can't just spin up all these jobs uh, willy nilly. And I, I believe Airflow is is a scheduler out of Airbnb that that, that some people use for it this application. Right. Ha- have you have you looked at that?
1: Yeah, we have. Yeah, so we've looked into Airflow and Luigi, which is another Python-based uh, DAG execution engine. Back when we started, so we started it about you know almost a year ago. So Airflow was really, really, really not mature at that stage. I think right now it's it's already. Uh, under the Apache incubator. So it's, it's probably a, a lot more production ready than it was uh, you know, almost a year ago when we started looking into that. But back then, it didn't quite work well for us. I think another, th- another issue is that we really wanted our platform, our ETL platform to be um, dynamic in the sense that you would not have to write code in order to, you know, add nodes to the graph. And Airflow is imperative in that sense that, you know, adding new nodes to the graph means that you, at least back then, it meant that you had to write some code yeah, uh, to do that. We really wanted to do it through an API so we could, you know, play around with it, you know, get things running full Slack or through, you know, our, our own user interface and things like that. Yeah, but I did hear that it, it actually, uh, it went a long way since back then. So maybe it's a good time for us to check it out again.
0: These ETL jobs run, you get the data, you normalize it all and then you throw it into into what into a database a data warehouse data warehouse yeah
1: so yeah so we're using google bigquery as our data warehouse huh. which has a lot of benefits for our use case i think just to to mention a couple of those so so Google BigQuery, it's, a, it's kind of like a, you know, a serverless data warehouse where you don't have to worry about you know, scaling uh, storage or compute or anything like that. Google takes care of that for you. So it, they used to compare it to AWS Redshift, but now I guess it's more similar to AWS Athena. So Google BigQuery has a lot of advantages for us. It, first, it has a really, really strong API. So you could pretty much create a table from, any, from anything using you know, a really simple uh, command line interface. So you could tell it hey go out and you know load this bunch of CSVs and use wildcards and everything and uh, some of them could be gzipped some of them could be plain out CSVs and they could be from a bunch of different locations and it would handle that pretty well. It also has pretty neat uh, automatic schema detection uh, mechanisms so you could treat it in a sense like a schemaless database. You don't really have to worry about uh, you know uh, structure changing. And it also supports snapshot queries so if you want to query tables you know to get the data that they held you know a few hours ago or things like that it's 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 built into the syntax so it's really, really easy to do basically it, at the end of the day it, it allows us the peace of mind of you know having you know petabyte scale data all in the same data warehouse without having to worry about you know the devops part of you know bab- babysitting it you know indexing it and things like that
0: it goes all into bigquery and then do you build your application on BigQuery, basically, or do you have? Do you ever put this data into Mongo or Redis right. or something?
1: Yeah. So after it's in BigQuery, it's basically the data warehouse where the main user of this database is our data science team. So what they would do is they would basically source and prepare queries. From the then they would code their models. This could be all sorts of models. Some of them, you know, like deep deep learning models. Some of them are things like uh, gradient boosted trees. So it's 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 quite a quite a large variety of models. And then once uh, once they have coded the model and experimented with it, usually using Jupyter notebook, we would use Google Cloud ML Engine to basically train, uh, evaluate, and tune the model. So Google Cloud ML Engine, it's it's kind of like a It's a cloud platform for, you know, doing everything after the model is already coded. So taking care of, you know, training it efficiently using GPUs or even TPUs if you're using TensorFlow, being able to deploy the model and also getting predictions from it. So they could actually, the Google ML Engine has the ability to serve an API for the predictions once the model is trained. Then it also provides you with the, the capability of monitoring, you know, the ongoing predictions. So you could basically compare, you know, things like you know training times, accuracy levels, uh, any weird stuff going on with loss functions after data has changed, and then finally you could also manage uh, manage your models and versions. So you could uh, you know decide which of the models you want to use in production right now. You you can A/B test different version of the model and things like that. So that would be the uh, the machine learning pipeline. So after after the data is already in BigQuery, so that's like one user, one type of user for the platform. The second type of user user is the engineering team who is responsible for maintaining our web application. So we also have a, a, like a Google Maps style web application where you could basically search, you know, for an asset by owner, or by by history, by um, address, by name, or you name it. And then you would basically be able to like uh, get tons of insights about the property, like, you know, future pr- predictions about the future rent and things like that within a few seconds. And that application works by querying an AWS Lambda API, and that AWS Lambda API fetches the data either from Redis, if it is indeed cached there, or if there is a cache mess, then it goes out all the way to Google BigQuery.
0: Wow. Okay, so you've described most of the stack there. We can talk a little bit more about managed services, hopefully. So you mentioned AWS Lambda and Google BigQuery, so it sounds like you're pretty cloud, and Hyper.sh, it sounds like you're pretty cloud agnostic.
1: Yeah, one of our first priorities is is being completely serverless in the sense that we don't want to have to you know spend time on you know worrying about uptime and things like that so yeah it could be our data warehouse which is bigquery it could be our you know api functions which are served over lambda or the ETLs which currently run on Hyper. Uh, yeah, we basically just try to pick you know the best solution for each part of the problem, regardless of whether it is on Google or Amazon or you know or whatever. And this approach has, you know it's it's proven itself to be quite efficient in our case.
0: I love it. I think that's really sophisticated. And I've been talking to a lot of companies that are migrating to Kubernetes but uh, it sounds like you have built in a way where you don't even really need a Kubernetes cluster.
1: Yeah, I think that if you are, nowadays, I really think that as long as you could use serverless, so if if, for example, your use case is supported on something like AWS Lambda, then there really isn't any reason not to do it, right? I guess that on some, there are definitely a lot of use cases, for example, like the ETL example, right? Where it's not a good fit for something like Lambda because it's long running and it has to manage state and things like that. So for those applications, you know, Kubernetes is definitely a good solution, especially if cost is involved. So, you know, our users at the end of the day are uh, the users of our platform are, you know, only, as I said, we're using the the platform to, you know, make better real estate deals, which means that either it it is us using the platform to actually, you know, track, source and acquire the assets, or it is someone from our real estate partners. So in that sense, the, the scale doesn't come from, you know, the using facing APIs, the user facing APIs. So in this regard, cost is not a huge concern for us. It's not that we have to manage, you know, like a million requests per second. And, and you know at, at which point, certainly, you know, managing your own servers on something like Kubernetes makes more sense than using Lambda. Our scale and cost is more on the, you know, uh, data part, like training the models, running the queries. Yeah. So, so luckily, uh, it's been possible for us to, you know, to, you know, get the best of our worlds when it comes to serverless and we don't have to, you know, to to carry the burden of managing something like a Kubernetes cluster.
0: If the bulk of your processing costs are coming from training machine learning models, does the Google hosted machine learning service, are they always going to be able to schedule and and train your models in a way that's more do they do that in a way that's more cost efficient than if you were trying to do it on your own kubernetes cluster for example
1: so you could implement you know what google has built with ml engine on your own but you know it's it's then it comes back to the to the trade-off you always have between you know implementing your own thing so i guess that on a certain scale currently at sky and ai we are about 20 people and about 12 of that is engineering. So, you know, I guess that, you know, the the larger the company becomes and the more, uh, you know, cost sensitive we will be uh, in the sense, you know, if you look at Facebook, Facebook has their own CDN, right? So it it, it never ends, you know, whenever you have, you know, a big need and you're big enough, you would eventually probably go out and, you know, build your own.
0: Well, who who knows if Facebook would need a CDN if they had started in the age of of serverless stuff
1: hard to know um yeah yeah i think it it is but uh, i guess you know it's again it's it probably comes back to the trade-off between you know how much how much effort and money you need to put in you know to build your own versus just leverage an off-the-shelf solution yeah have
0: you been able to avoid downtime and heavy operational issues and heavy debugging issues through this serverless approach
1: Yes, yes. So we haven't actually had any downtime since we started the company, since we went to production. And that's largely due to the fact that it's quite difficult... To, you know, to bring down something like AWS Lambda, we are using a bunch of you know logging stuff, and we have some automation around making sure that you know production shows what it should show. We definitely get sometimes bugs, you know, uh, like you know, in the visual aspects of things and, and things like that. But uh, but the infrastructure side, it's, uh, I'm glad to say it it's been we've been really fortunate in having a, like a, a quite a perfect uptime thus far.
0: So there's a lot a lot of stuff we didn't cover, but I guess I I do want to take a step back because we're we're running out of time. This company architecture, the the software architecture you have, probably is dramatically different than the previous companies you've had. How does the difference in, in going heavily on serverless, managed services, AWS Lambda, etc., how does that change the company building side of things, and how does it translate into advantages? when you, When you compare the company building exercise today to your previous companies,
1: yeah. So Sky and AI is very, very different indeed. I think it's mostly different in the sense that, well, in a couple of ways. First of all, it's it's a, we really have a I would say a, a mutually respectful size of a, you know data science team versus an engineering team. So we actually have more data scientists than engineers at the company, which is also a first for us, and that actually creates a lot of uh, interesting challenges. You know, in basically being able to maintain the you know kind of like the the agile, the agile mentality, you know, when, you know, when you have to deal with a lot of people doing research. So that's one, I think, really interesting challenge that we're, that we've, you know, had the chance to, to cope with here, which is fairly different uh, from the previous companies. We also have the fact that, you know, there is a really large business side that is really, really different, you know, from our world as like as tech guys. And merging that discipline into the company is also something that is, you know, quite refreshing and, uh, and interesting for us. There are actually a lot of similarities because, you know, eventually it, we did it in cyber and then we did it in video. But both uh, Visionize and StreamRail were around, you know, at the end of the day, you know, using data to optimize stuff. And while we haven't actually had the, uh, you know, the luxury of working with completely serverless infrastructures in the past, we have gotten a taste of them. And uh, it was quite clear to us that, you know, whenever these things becomes a reality, then we will be the first to adopt it. So yeah, it definitely I think it definitely helped us you know scale the scale the technology business because you know we don't have to these days you know even we could take a data scientist fresh out of university doesn't know nothing about DevOps and they could pretty easily integrate their code into our workflow which is kind of a complex architecture when you think about it. So it's the same the same if I would guess that if we would if we would want to do that you know before the way there were the days of. You know, cloud ML and BigQuery and Lambda, then we will probably have to have you know ops guys and DevOps people. Yeah, so it, it definitely helped us, you know, uh, you know grow really, really quickly when it came when it comes to uh, you know, you know launching the product to production.
0: Well, I think the hangover from proprietary, like the 90s, proprietary databases, proprietary operating systems, people getting locked into those things, the hangover has been really severe. And so people have been really resistant to jumping on managed services and and going all in on them, at least some people. That's just my sample from talking to people. But you know I think as productivity, I'm like if you're a random hacker in a bedroom, build on Heroku, build on Firebase, if you're starting a new company, build on as much managed services as you can unless you're on a really low margin margin kind of kind of business and costs are really that important.
1: Yeah yeah I totally agree I think that you know whatever can be done like serverless has to be serverless like there's no really justification in in you oh. know in doing it uh, in any other way if it is available in in a serverless way and if it's a good fit
0: uh, So the company is doing fantastic and you've already got all these commercial properties in in the united states what are the challenges that you're encountering what are the biggest challenges and what's in the future for skyline ai
1: so thus far we've been focused on uh, on you know uh, executing deals on a deal-by-deal basis which meant that whenever we uh you know sourced and underwritten a deal that we liked we went out to our investor base which is mostly around like family offices or high net worth individuals globally
0: Right, so, so I'm sorry, I didn't even allow you to explain really the business model. So, so there are, you surface deals and then you bring them to people and then people have a chance to invest in the real estate opportunities that you discover?
1: Right, so basically our model is, is kind of similar to what is uh, sometimes referred to as private equity. So on one end of the equation, uh, you have capital and that capital can come from institutions like you know, pension funds or insurance companies. Or it could come from family offices, which is basically which are companies that manage capital for some rich families. Uh, or it could come from uh, what's referred to as high net worth individuals, so people with enough capital to be able to afford investments in, a, you know, in, a, in expensive asset class, right? Like multifamily, where you know the minimum check sizes could be several millions of dollars. So that's like one end of the of the equation. And then on the other end of the equation, there are the operators. So these are the guys or the companies that are really doing the hands-on real estate part. So they would be the ones who are actually physically acquired the co- acquiring the property, taking care of uh, managing it, applying the renovation part, and so forth. And in the middle, there are the private equities. So companies like Blackstone, for example, it's one of the w- most well-known private equities for real estate. And the area where we operate is, is there. It's in the private equity slot. The difference is that we are doing everything, you know, according, you know, enhanced by technology. So it could be in the sourcing of the deals or, you know, figuring out a certain area that we want to focus on. It could be actual und- uh, the underwriting of the deal. So once we already have a deal on the table, we would use our AI in order to, you know, make sense of it. But eventually the, the business model is, is, is roughly the same we go out and we you know we raise money whenever we think we can make a good investment. So thus far we've done that on a deal by deal basis, meaning that once we had a deal that we thought okay, we're going to, you know, go after this one, we would go out and raise the money. But right now we are working on, you know, changing this a little bit into more like uh, something like a fund structure where we would basically partner with a large operator in the states and together we would be raising a large fund to allow us to deploy Uh, you know, more efficiently and and more quickly. So that's one of our, you know, main goals uh, for the next couple of months. We're already doing pretty good there. And we're already also working, uh, you know, from a technology perspective, we're working on, Basically uh, expanding to additional asset classes so we started off with multifamily but we also have office logistics uh, industrial and uh, you know a lot of more uh, asset classes coming up yeah so a lot to do very cool
0: well or it's been really great talking to you I appreciate you coming on the show and making time to tell me about Skyline AI
1: sure thanks for having me Wow.